buddy, put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The Michael Duke Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com. And across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. Good morning. How are you this morning? Welcome back to the program. It is the Michael Dukes Show, broadcasting live across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator hello and good morning i don't know what happened there but we lost something oh look at that hey there we go we uh <clears throat> we're looking for a little audio and we got some audio okay hey how are you this morning um we are ready to go and uh jump into it here uh just another beautiful day uh in paradise we are ready to go and talking about all things Alaska. That's what we focus on on this program. We uh, we focus on this program uh, mostly just about Alaskan things because uh, it's the one thing we have some input in and have some control over, right? That's what it's all about. Um, Dave asks, good morning, Michael. Can I join the 6 o'clock club even though technically it's 9 o'clock here in Iowa? Yes, Dave. It's all about the Alaskan time zone. Alaska is number one. So if you are listening to the sound of my voice at this time, you are a member of the 6 o'clock club. Welcome to it. Uh, today, we're going to get started here right away with uh, one of our favorite people, Sarah Montalbano, who is the education um, uh, analyst, consultant. She is with the Alaska Policy Forum. All things education. All things education. She's going to be joining us this morning to talk about charter schools and also to talk about open enrollment and other ideas and rankings. And it's going to be nearly a full hour of nothing but educational stuff. We love that for sure. So we're going to talk with her and then in hour two, um, we're just going to jaw jack. Uh, we're, you and I are just going to sit around and chat and talk about some of the things that we need to talk about and we'll be We'll be ready to go on that. Okay, uh, so enough, uh, enough, uh, uh, enough talking right now. Let's get uh, let's get to it, shall we? Uh, it's a Monday, which means I'm feeling a little unput together. But uh, let's talk with somebody who's always put together, always put together, always knows what she's doing, always knows what's going on, and that is Sarah Montalbano with the Alaska Policy Forum. She joins us right now. Uh, and we say good morning to her. Good morning there, young lady. How are uh, how are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing pretty well. How about you? You know, like I said, it's a Monday. I uh, <clears throat> I'm feeling a little 
Um, I had to take part of the studio apart for a big event this weekend, and so when I put it back together, I thought everything was fine. Turns out there was camera issues this morning. There was audio issues this morning. So I'm <laughs> feeling a little bit, uh, feeling that, you know, we're, we're, we're here, we're good to go, but it was feeling a little panicky this morning. So I'm ready to talk. I'm ready to get some wisdom from you and to figure out what's going on. So, uh, uh, good morning. Thank you for coming on board. I've been asking Sarah to come on for a little bit, but she's a busy lady. She's got lots of stuff going on. Uh, and so <clears throat> we finally got her back on here to talk about it. Um, there's lots of things to discuss in uh, in education. But first things first, let's talk a little bit about your latest piece here uh, over at alaskapolicyforum.org where you were talking about charter schools. Now, we keep hearing kind of this... Hmm, I wouldn't say demeaning talk, but kind of like the looking down their nose at <laughs> oh, charter schools. Oh, get, oh, you filthy peasants, get back. Uh, but charter schools are, uh, it's an interesting critter because they are actually and technically public schools just in a different way. So let's talk a little bit about your, uh, let's talk a little bit about this article and get the get the word out here. Thank you. Yeah, I was really excited to write this because this, issue really frustrates me. And the title of it is Charter Schools Are Public Schools. And I mean that fully and sincerely. Uh, they are the most well-known, I think, mainstream form of school choice, but they're still being, you know, degraded as, you know, uh, public funds for private schools. And, you know, how do I know charter schools are being accountable? Um, and the fact of the matter is that charter schools are held to the same standards of accountability. They get public funds. They're not not allowed to cherry pick their students. They have to draw by a lottery if there's, um, you know, too many students who want in uh, and not enough seats. And it's really amazing because what happens is a charter school, if it's not meeting the terms of its charter, it can be shut down. And we all know that doesn't really happen with failing traditional public schools. Yeah, we wish. <laughs> right. I mean, we've seen some schools with some horrific efforts and, and records and people are just like, nah, let them go. You know, charter schools, they drop one point and it's like evil. I mean, you know, it's just the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. And I, I really think it's important to remember that charter schools are accountable to the market. Uh, too, that by these choices, uh, they are, are, you know, if, if students don't want to enroll there, a charter is going to have a hard time staying open, too. Uh, so it's not just that uh, charter schools have to follow the same standards for accountability and, um, you know, test scores and all of these things, but they also can be shut down and they can be doing that if they just aren't meeting a need that students have. It's frustrating, especially when parents are looking, especially parents who are engaged. You know, that's what we're always asking for, right? We want more parents to be engaged. So parents get engaged and then they get castigated for being engaged and wanting to drive what's going on with their students and, you know, working with a charter or, you know, private school or whatever. And so it's it's a two-edged sword. You know, we want the – well, I guess maybe it's – we more than the education industrial complex that wants the parents to be engaged. They would just rather the parents just drop their kids off with them and let them raise them. I mean, at this point, it seems like to me in this case. I think it's interesting you say that. I think that public traditional public schools look at parental engagement as something completely different than we do. Their definition would be kind of bare minimum things to participate in their system. Things like 
show up to parent-teacher conferences, get involved with the PTA, you know, do do all of these certain things that are, you know, very strictly defined. And when we talk about parental engagement, we're talking about things that are, you know, kind of unwelcome to them. It doesn't fit neatly into their mold. Uh, so I think the one thing that sets charters apart is that parents have to decide, yes, I would like to enroll my child in the lottery to go here. That doesn't mean that all of those parents meet the lottery and get to go to the charter school and engage with that charter school, but it does mean that those parents are just more interested in their child's education in some ways uh, because they took the initiative to try and be there. Right, exactly. Well, let's talk about some of the things that, I mean, you've got a little piece here uh, in your article, which I forgot. I'll link. Let me link this up in the chat room if folks <laughs> want to go take a look at it. They can read it uh, uh, in the chat room right now. Um, but let's talk about some of the differences in charter schools because they do have some uh, <clears throat> they do have the, their own decision making power they have some autonomy right in this and so they're not exactly like public schools and I think that's what maybe attracts some of the parents to these uh, charter schools and these organizations I agree completely so we'll start with the similarities here you know charter schools are publicly funded they're open to all students students who aren't uh, if there's not enough seats Students are picked via a random lottery, uh, so it's it's fair in that way. And they're subject to mostly the same laws and regulations. The difference is that charter schools, because they are signing this contract called a charter, um, they have some autonomy in their curriculum design, um, teaching methods, and, you know, management structure. So they can do some innovative things like, say, you know, we're a Waldorf school, we're a Montessori school, we're following these other curricula that might fit better for your child. Um, and they are able to do that because it is set out in their contract. So that is, I think, what draws parents to charter schools is that they're able to engage in these curricula without, you know, having to pay tuition, without having to go to the lengths of a private school. Right. And again, this is the ultimate of uh, what I would consider to be the ultimate of parental engagement. Uh, although, as you said, maybe that's not quite the engagement that some in the power structure uh, are looking for. Um, and uh, Donna in the chat room says, Alaska charter schools have an academic policy committee made up of parents, which again is, again, parents overseeing the actual education of their students, not at a district level, but at a school level. Again, the ultimate parental involvement. And I mean, I I hate to be controversial. <laughs> Who am I kidding? I but yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, but seriously, I mean, this is this is this is kind of at the heart of what we're fighting right now. We're seeing this in school boards across the country, where they look at the parents as if it's an afterthought. That once you've turned your kids over to the state, well, they're the we're the ultimate arbiters of what your kids are going to learn. We're going to decide what their policies are going to be. We're going to decide what the curricula and whether it's going to be reading and writing and arithmetic or some kind of social justice or what. I mean, that's the thing. As soon as parents get involved, it gets a little heated sometimes. It does. And I think it comes down again to those differing definitions that um, people in the traditional education system, well, they're not just thinking of, you know, showing up to school board meetings for pre-pandemic school board meetings were some of the most boring places to be. There just weren't parents all all there uh, to try and influence these things. Um, so they see parental involvement as a little a little bit too much, just like angry parents. We just have angry parents. We need to manage angry parents. Uh, and I think that's that's really a shame because I think if they saw it from 
our perspective uh, that we have parents that are interested and engaged in the curriculum decisions uh, that we would be able to kind of come together for for some resolution here. Let's talk a little bit about the genesis of charter schools. Now, they are established, <clears throat> excuse me, they're established uh, in Alaska, uh, but they can only be by a local school district, right? But they are, it's basically a contracted or chartered situation. So walk us walk us through that here in Alaska and how do we differ from other states? Yes, I love this part of charter school law. Uh, a lot of states have um, multiple authorizers. So in Alaska, a charter school has to apply to their local school board and say, here's the need we want to meet. Here's how we're going to do it. Uh, here's what we'd like our charter to look like. And the school district can decide to approve it or not, uh, which always seems a little backwards to me because school districts may see charter schools as competition. They may say, no, we don't need this. We're doing fine. Um, in other states, there are multiple authorizers. So those are, you know, either there's a whole bunch of options, but things like an independent chartering board at the state level can decide, hey, we'll authorize this charter school. Um, sometimes there's universities. There's a couple states that do that where a university can sponsor a charter school. Um, the state education agency. So in Alaska, maybe DEED could authorize a charter school. So there's a lot of different ways to make this happen that we've seen across the U.S. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. But Alaska only allows local school districts, uh, school boards Which, to approve. Right. I mean, that's the fox like saying, uh, no, I'm not going to give you the keys to the hen house kind of thing. I mean, they, you know, they don't like the because it is in some ways it is a competitive notion because it allows people to take their kids to a school that doesn't conform to the overall school district policy. And that's uh, I mean, that's a, that's a huge deal. You also mentioned that charter schools, um, they can they can they can have their charters revoked if they don't hit specific numbers like you said earlier i mean there's a lot of schools out there that will probably love that <clears throat> excuse me because they aren't held to the same standards i mean a standard brick and mortar school in a lot of ways if it has a failing output or a failing outcome their students are not doing well they're like yeah okay well we'll do better next time kind of thing there's no fear there's no repercussions whereas with a charter school that that could lead to the end of their charter sure yeah and i i I think, first of all, sometimes these chargers are a lot stricter than the standards that traditional school districts would be held to. I recall, I can't remember what state this was, but there was, you know, mandates about, you know, flying the American flag in every classroom and, you know, all, all of these different requirements that aren't required for traditional schools. Um, and so charter schools found, you know, in their 500 pages applications that they were agreeing to a lot of things that, you know, traditional schools don't have to. So one, they're being held to stricter standards. And two, like I said, there's a market force here. If students aren't wanting to enroll in your charter or you are dramatically failing in your promises to students, uh, your charter can and sometimes is revoked. Um, and that's just not something that we see with traditional public schools. The usual answer to that is, oh, this school is struggling. We'll give them more funding. Uh, and that is just not 
an option for charter schools. That's not what happens in this ecosystem. No, no, no. They're definitely treated like the uh, proverbial, no offense intended, redheaded stepchild at this point. Um, <laughs> Sarah has red hair for those of you who can't see her. All right, we're going to be back. Uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about the outcomes of charter schools. And then we'll move on to some other topics as well, um, including some insane stuff that's happening in Oregon and being copied in other places around the state. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. The Michael Duke Show continues. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. Sarah Montalbano is our, I love saying that. That just, I love that name. I just love saying it. Uh, she joins <laughs> us this morning and yes, she does have a soul, even though she has red hair. I've guaranteed, I've guaranteed it. It's one of those things. Sarah, this, this is, um, <laughs> this education thing. And, uh, I've been harping about education for many years. Uh, I mean, I have, I have posited, uh, on this program for the last 20 years, that there's some, something fundamentally broken in the education system in America, and nobody has been willing to talk about it uh, or acknowledge it. Instead, the answer is always just throw more money at it and it will fix itself kind of thing. And then we saw things like these charter schools and everything else come about. Um, and you actually go into the um, um, you actually go into some of the history and some of the success stories of charter schools, which I guess we can get into. Uh, on the other side, we don't have to go into it, but it seems like at every opportunity where people have tried to better the education system, it has been um, poorly received, not by the public, but more by what I've been calling the education industrial complex, just like uh, Eisenhower uh, you know, warned of the military industrial complex. We've got kind of the same thing here where more in more and more times – it is the education uh, leaders, the the professionals, they seem to be kind of running the show instead of the parents and others uh, in that case. Is that kind of what your take is on it? I see a lot of the same things you do. What I try to remember is the history of education in the U.S. It's rather long and complicated, but, you know, I, at one point, this education made sense. This this kind of, you know, factory drill mindset was what we were preparing kids for. We were trying to make them good factory workers and the skills you needed for that were, you know, memorization and ability to take directions and stand for long periods. Um, and that's just not what we want for our kids today. We want creativity and creative critical thinking, uh, and all of these different things that are, you know, the modern society. So maybe this was working. I'm not arguing necessarily that it was, but what's clear is that it really isn't working now. Um, and we see, I think people are just resistant to change. This is a bureaucracy like any other. And uh, what we find with that is it's just incredibly diff difficult to push things in the way that reformers might want. 
Right. Well, <clears throat> you know, yeah, back in the day when Horace Mann was the first one to kind of put all this together and start talking about, I mean, it was the, you know, it was on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that's what they were looking for. They were looking for people who could follow instructions, learn things by rote, to stand, you know, stand for a long period of time, conform. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a generation of factory workers. And hey, they created it. Great. But the times have changed. And it seems like, there's just a, a lack of um, imagination, I guess, in understanding that things may be like education needs, especially when we look at the scholastic achievement and the scoring and things like that. And we see that what's going on is not moving the needle. And that's what seems, that's what bugs me is that and, and, and that and the kind of the diversion of all these other things that have nothing to do with reading and writing and arithmetic, logic rhetoric, reason, you know, finding a way, teaching the love of learning, those kind of things. Instead, we get caught up in all these other things that really don't matter. Absolutely. And I've said before on this program that I think schools are really trying to do way too much um, and they're not doing any of it well anymore, um, that the basics are reading, writing and arithmetic, uh, that you have to be able to do a certain level of these things in order to become, you know, do whatever it is you want in life. I don't care if you go to college, you can, if you'd like, you can go be a factory worker right now, if you'd like. But the truth of the matter is you need certain basic skills. Uh, and we're just trying to do so much that we are neglecting those things as well, well. Critical thinking. I mean, I think you nailed it when you talked about critical thinking. I mean, that's part of the triumvirate, again, the Socratic method. And we... I mean, you ask these kids what the Socratic method is and nobody could tell you what it is because they don't understand because that's what you have to develop in people so that they can analyze and be analytical later on in their lives. And they just can't. We're just not doing it. It's a it's frustrating for me to watch. It's one of the reasons why I never put my kids into a brick and mortar school, quite honestly. All right. Uh, we're going to continue on. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. Montalbano. We're going to continue with that here. Uh, the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Like, share, follow. Let's get this going on. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <laughs> Pinch of inel. Sorry, that is humorous. Here's Michael Dukes. I mean, it's a pinch, but I got big fingers, so it could be larger than most people. Uh, anyway, welcome back to the program. We are continuing now. Sarah Montalbano is our guest from the Alaska Policy Forum. She's the educational analyst for uh, AFP or APF, Alaska Policy Forum, APF. Uh, and we've been talking about charter schools. Um, and so before we get into the uh, achievements of the charter schools, uh, I, I don't want to shortchange you here because you did a little bit of uh, history making here, well, not making, but reporting, uh, of kind of the history of where charter schools have, have come from. And th there's been a, a reason for them. There's a genesis, you know, the reason for this kind of this genesis and what came out of it. Uh, and in some ways it goes back 20 years to some crises and natural disasters and everything else. So give us a little bit of history of charters, and then we'll talk about the actual achievement. Absolutely. Also very interesting topic. Charter schools really got their start and found their niche in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Um, all of the district's buildings pretty much, you know, 120 out of 
126 or something, were just absolutely devastated. And they had to build the school system back up from scratch. Um, and so now what they decided, because New Orleans schools were failing so badly, um, they decided, you know, the state took it under their wing and said, we're doing charter schools here. Like, we are just going to have charter schools. Um, and now what we see is, even though scores have improved for uh, control of the district has been returned back. Um, now what we see is that students aren't assigned to school at all based on where they live, their residential zoned area that we see in so many other places. But parents have to enter the lotteries and they they get a couple choices and they say, look, this is these are the charters where I would be happy to send my kid. Uh, and they do that. And so what we've seen is some pretty tremendous success. New Orleans graduation rate uh, rose from 54% in 2004 up to 78% in 2021. Uh, so that's still lower than national averages, but a huge improvement. Um, and so they're seeing increased test scores. They're seeing increased graduation rates, college attendance, and college graduation. So it's, it's really exciting to see. And this is where their testing ground was because, unfortunately, New Orleans was pretty much they had to start from a clean slate. Right. Which don't, yeah, don't wish for that. But I mean, sometimes, no, you, sometimes, you, sometimes you kind of like, boy, I'd really like to kind of get a fresh start. You can't unpickle a pickle. You know what I mean? You got to get a new cucumber. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at. But, uh, and you, and you talk about it, the achievements of charter schools historically and nationally have been pretty darn good. I mean, they uh, again the 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 open market, the free market, uh, and competition rules, in many cases, and the achievements of uh, charter schools, pretty darn good. Give me the give me the details here. Absolutely, I don't like to say a study revealed so and so, such and such, um, but what generally seems to be the consensus in research circles is that you know charters do seem to improve achievement for their students, and there's even some evidence that charter school competition helps improve uh, their school districts and traditional public schools near them. Um, and so, what I went through in this article, there was a recently released study looking at the uh, a group of students between 2015 and 2019 and they found charter school students outpaced their traditional public school peers uh, by about 16 days of learning in reading and six days of math that doesn't sound like a whole lot but when you think about the fact that school years are only about 180 days that adds up to a lot and the reason we can look at these studies with such um we, we can consider them credible for the most part because Remember what I said about charter school students being picked by a lottery. That means they're randomly selected. That means right. that those students who applied but still had to go to their traditionally zoned public school because they lost the lottery, they're essentially, you know, similar enough that we can make these comparisons. And the parent parent engagement for applying for the charter school, that's held constant too. Those parents were still interested, they just lost lost the vet right um so that's that's i think one of the reasons charter school studies are so interesting and we can put a lot of credence in their uh results here yeah it's kind of like a randomized double blind study right because everybody's got an equal chance of doing it and then you see the results uh on the uh on the other side and you say that 16 days of learning and reading and six days of math doesn't seem like a lot but when you break it down into the numbers, 83% of charter students performed as well or better than traditional schools, and 75% of students performed as well or better in math, which those are the two that we continue to seem to fall. I mean, of the three reading, writing,
reading and arithmetic, it seems like those are the ones that we're falling down on all the time. The reading comprehension, the writing, and the math, those are the ones that, I mean, Alaska is, what, 48th, 49th, 50th in all these categories. And mm-hmm. those are the categories that charter schools seem to be doing better at than, uh, than standard brick-and-mortar uh, education system schools. Absolutely. And I think... Um it's 49th and fourth grade reading on the 2022 national assessment of educational progress, by the way, I've cited that one a lot, but what I will say is, you know, we see these gains are really well concentrated among the kids who need them most. So if we look at urban school districts, the minority and low income students who apply for charter schools, they're doing so well compared to their peers. Uh, So I, I really think this is opportunities that as many children as possible deserve. Um, and we do see this this improvement, especially among the students who are in the charter schools, but also some improvements in uh, traditional public schools near them. We're talking with Sarah Montalbano, who's the education analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. We're talking about education charter schools at this point. Let's uh, let's uh, wrap this up. You mentioned a couple times, Sarah, that this has got a uh, this has got an effect in making regular brick and mortar schools also more competitive. Explain that to us a little bit before we move on here. So what we see is, um, you know, this competition is improving things uh, among other schools. And I see, let me find my study here that I cited, but um, there's some reasonable evidence that this competition is helping things for traditional public schools. Um, You know, we're seeing rising scores on the NAEP among these schools nearby. Um, and you, you can measure these things pretty well. So I would love to talk more about that in detail. That was more of an aside. I think really the primary goal for should be improving things for the students who get to go. But we have to remember all of these students who don't win the lottery, uh, but are still benefited by having charter schools. Well, this is this is a great segue into our discussion about open enrollment, because open enrollment also has the same effect of creating competition amongst various schools. There was a recent report from uh, Reason, uh, the Reason Foundation, talking about uh, every state's open enrollment policies and how by creating open enrollment, uh, you have created it basically a competition of equals amongst the regular school system uh, uh, schools and uh, how by doing that you're making and forcing these schools to be more accountable for what they're demanding because if if the parent doesn't like what's happening at a specific school with open enrollment they can take their kids to another school in the same district and that gives them a lot of uh, opportunity to pick and choose Alaska doesn't have open enrollment at the state level they do at the at some of the district levels but uh, let's talk about open enrollment yeah this i'm really glad you brought this up because we wrote about the two 2022 index um, earlier this year, and Alaska hasn't improved on any counts, um, but other states have. Other states had a pretty successful legislative session on open enrollment. But what open enrollment basically means is that, you know, students can transfer to the public schools other than what they're residentially assigned to do, uh, as long as seats are available. Um, And so in many states, this is restricted usually to just students who are being, you know, severely bullied or otherwise having some really severe academic challenges at a school. Um, but what the Reason Foundation uh, tries to put together is like, here is what an ideal open enrollment policy would look like for states. Here are the states who are measuring up. Here are the ones who are not. Um, and then 
the the main forms of open enrollment are you know across districts. So you're you're transferring from Anchorage to Matsu or Matsu to Anchorage, um, and your the other one is um, interdistrict. So you're you're looking within your district. You're trying to get to a different school within your same school district, um, and so there's a lot of things to talk about in this one. Uh, but what I really loved is uh, Reason cites a report that they did earlier on Wisconsin's cross-district enrollment. And what they found is that the districts do respond to competition and the schools that were losing students to transfers, so they were losing their students to other schools, uh, they initially improved on the state tests. You know, they were responsive to that and improved their academics to correspond. Right. They did better because they were forced to basically pick up their pace because, oh, we're losing students. We've got to do something to retain these students. We've got to do something to remain attractive in the marketplace of ideas. And so we've got to do better in what we're doing, which is completely antithetical to what the normal model is, which is we'll just keep going and maybe we'll do better next time, maybe. But there's nothing forcing it. As soon as that there was open enrollment and people started picking and choosing which school they wanted their kids to go to, that's when they discovered, whoa, 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 wait a second, we have to do better to keep attracting or retaining these students in these various uh, in these various uh, schools, specific schools within a district or within a state. Now, only five states or six states have actually um, uh, implemented four out of the five best practices that uh, Reason had uh, suggested. But the good news is 34 states have, uh, well, one or maybe some. I mean, Alaska has none of these five things. Some of the districts, like Matsu, for example, has got an open enrollment across their district. They won't bus you to it, but you can choose any school in the district if there's room and take them over there. Um, but uh, the suggestion here is, is that we should be doing something like this at a state level. Absolutely. And I think what Reason is suggesting is, you know, either mandatory or voluntary open enrollment across districts, within districts, along with some transparency and reporting requirements where the state education agency has to tell you, okay, here's the number of students who were turned down for transfers and here's the reasons why. And what they really want is that the only really acceptable reason to turn someone away is if you don't have the seat for them. Uh, all of these other choices, if it's a voluntary open enrollment, you might say, eh, you know, we don't want that student for whatever reason. Um, and that's, that's just not not really fair. Um, so what I what I see reason suggesting here is, is that Alaska is flunking on all of these marks at the statewide level. Right, exactly. Well, and the bottom line is with the decline in student enrollment since COVID, and there's been a tremendous decline in enrollment in brick and mortar schools since COVID, there should be no problem having an empty seat in some of these schools, right? I mean, this should not be an issue. If the parent's willing to get the transportation to get them to where they need to go, this should not be a problem. And this should, again, be the ultimate in parental interaction and parental involvement in deciding where they want their kids to go and making those choices. And ultimately... It's good for all the schools, both the school that the, that the kid is put in and the kid that the, the school that the kid was pulled out of, because now they are, again, having to be more competitive in the marketplace. This really is kind of that breach of the free market, you know, getting into this educational system. 
Absolutely. And Wisconsin aligned their financial incentives so that districts want to take transfer students. Uh, they have a set fixed amount of, of funding that follows that student. And so when you get a transfer student, you get the funding that comes along with it. Uh, so there's no reason for districts to try to turn students away as long as they have the seats they want them because then they get that funding. Uh, so I, I really do think we can you know, practice some regulatory humility here too, but we can also say like, this is what's working. This is a, a very free market approach that allows market signals to come into play here. It improves schools across the board uh, with this introduction of competition. Um, and it's the thing that most respects the rights of the parents too, right? right. Uh, you shouldn't have to buy an expensive house in a nice neighborhood to get a good school. Right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going into my whole backpack funding thing right now, talking about the things following the students. And <laughs> I mean, you know, all these ideas that, again, I can hear people already at the headquarters of the NEA uh, or the you know local NEA chapter screaming at the screen right now, because that's something that they definitely are not interested in. That's for sure. Uh, all right. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. Uh, we're going to continue here with her. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the uh, open enrollment, and then we're going to talk about what's going on in Oregon and how that kind of ideal seems to be spreading to other parts of the country. God forbid it should happen here. It is astonishing. Uh, we're going to talk about that, get her take on it, and more when we return. The Michael Luke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio, Sarah Montalbano, our guest. We return with more right after this. Suppository. The Michael Duke Show. Okay, Sarah Montalbano, our guest here on the program. Um, you know, we were having a discussion because uh, you know it's the October was the municipal elections in uh, in some places across the state, and of course we got the big one here uh, in just about a week here in the Matsu, and it's been interesting to watch. Um, these school board races, these tiny little communities, I mean, comparatively to the rest of the lower 48, tiny little communities like Fairbanks um, with their school boards. And all of a sudden, we're seeing tens of thousands of dollars um, being poured into these little races from outside interest groups, from outside the lower 48, Washington, D.C., uh, all these places pouring tens of thousands of dollars into these races in, like, for example, little old Fairbanks, Alaska, to try and uh, and influence their school board elections. And it's, it's astonishing to watch. Uh, do you have any thoughts on all this outside interest on the school, on the school boards and the school district levels? I always have to be careful about what I say about elections and races. So I will say first that I don't really know all that much about what's going on and I have no opinion on it. Uh, what I will say is that it's really concerning uh, that we have outside interest groups funneling a lot of money into these races. Um, I think it's it's the kind of thing where we're seeing you know, the interests of local people could be superseded by this funding. Um, so that that is, pretty much the extent of what I'll say about it, but uh, it very much concerns me. Well, for a second, let's look at the historical impact and the historical effect of what a, what a school board is and what it's supposed to be. 
Historically, a school board is supposed to be made up of concerned parents who are helping direct the educational components of their child's public education, right? That's what it's supposed to be. Mom and pops, people who are involved, who want to know, who want to. And yet what it seems to have happened over the last 20 years or so is that more and more they're being edged out of the mom and pops are being edged out of the school uh, boards. More and more what you're seeing is education professionals being part of the school boards, teachers, superintendents, union people. The In Fairbanks now, this last election, uh, the entire school board is made up of education industry people, with the exception of one, Melissa Burnett is the last one where she's just a mom wanting to be on the school board, trying to, you know, trying to direct where her kids' education are going. And it, and that seems to be a trend where more and more school boards are now made up of industry uh, people who have a vested interest in what's going on. Now, they may argue that, well, they've got the expertise because they're educational experts. But at the point is, that's not what the point of a, of a school board was supposed to be, parental involvement and parental input into what's going on in the school. Am I am I missing it or what do you think? I think I think you're you're right on the money there. And the dynamics of this, let's let's think for a second. We have two interest groups here. We have teachers and we have parents. Which one is better organized? Yeah. Teachers. Uh, they have this this union apparatus that is able to quickly disseminate information. They usually endorse candidates and then think about, you know, where are your polling places? They're oftentimes in schools. So it's very low effort. It's very easy for a teacher to go vote uh, towards their interests. And it's a lot harder for parents to do that because parents are simply not as well organized. Right. Uh, so that's not to say, you know, parents aren't interested or even more interested than teachers. It's just the barriers to voting for a teacher for school board is a lot lower than it is for parents sometimes. Um, and so I, I think this is a pretty natural uh, evolution of where school boards have been going. Um, that's that's just the dynamics of the situation. Right. It's an inevitable outcome in these kind of things where bureaucracies, I think, have a vested interest in making things go a certain way. And if they have the opportunity, and as you point out, since they are organized as opposed to individual independent parents, it makes it easier to come together on that. Uh, and it may be inevitable, but it doesn't mean that it's right. It does, you know, that's the thing. It doesn't mean that that was what was intended at the beginning of this whole situation. And I think that's kind of where we're at right now, where. And, and you're seeing some of that pushback, right? We saw it in West Virginia. We saw it in some of these places where they came out and literally said the quiet part out loud, where we know better than you what your children should mm -hmm. learn. And there was an immediate pushback. So I think some people are starting to wake up to that. Uh, and that might be why we're seeing more of this outside money come, because it's a vested interest. They want to protect the vested interest of the industry professionals who are in there. But I just I find it a sad commentary that this is supposed to be an organization that is allowing the parents to have input into their kids' educational system and they're being sidelined by this kind of stuff. And it's 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 a little frustrating. I understand completely. It concerns me uh, to see these kind of developments. Um, and, and it's just, it's really, it's about parents. That's all I'll say about it is this, this should be about parents being interested and engaged. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about our efforts uh, in open enrollment here in the state, and then we're going to go on to the uh, we're going to go on to the uh, 
uh, thing that's happening in Oregon, which is mind-blowing. Uh, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. The Michael Duke Show continues. Uh, please like and share. Like and follow. Do all that kind of stuff. Uh, let's get Sarah's face on everybody's Facebook feed. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy? Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. Whew, I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. That's right, not your daddy's talk radio. Although my daddy is in the chat room here somewhere. I saw him earlier this morning. Um, All right. uh, Welcome back to the program. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, uh, the Alaska Policy Forum. We're talking about the state of state education. Uh, We were just talking about open enrollment. Oh, she's two-fisting it today. Or no, it's the same cup with two sides. Uh, It's right. She says, I love a school choice uh, mug uh, on her desk. See, that's the way to do it. Um, Sarah, let's uh, finish up here with open enrollment. Uh, Obviously, your position is that open enrollment uh, would be good at a statewide level. Like I said, some of the school districts are allowing it, but what we really need is some state guidelines so that it's available across the whole state, right? That's what you're pushing for right now? Yeah, that's what the Reason Foundation recommends, and I generally agree with that, too, is that you ought to be able to transfer across districts and within your own district uh, kind of by default as long as there are seats allowed. And the state, you know, needs to be able to transparently publish a lot of this information, too. You know, how many seats are available in the school you might want to go to? Why were people rejected? How many people were rejected? Um, All of these like little data collection things would be a really good thing uh, to help implement open enrollment. And again, would give parents the choice to basically be where if you wanted to, if you wanted to ferry your kids out to the Matsu and you're in Anchorage and it was available, that would be, you know, and again, if your kids are the most important thing and that was what was worth it to you, that makes a, that makes a, 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 total sense at this point um what is there anything in the state level right now that's working towards that way are these things at uh you know in discussions at a state level i am not aware of any. if any commenters happen to know anything please get in touch with me but as far as i know no Okay. Well, maybe it's something that we can uh, we can we can work on. I know that uh, Donna said that you were part of helping to write HP 165, which adds a state board of ed as an authorizer for charter schools and some other things. So I know we have some good things moving forward, but yeah, maybe an open enrollment would be another thing that we could add to our quiver of things that we need to talk about. Um, all right. Well, I sent you this story and behind the scenes, you and I were emailing back and forth about, wow, this is a kind of a crazy, crazy thing going on in Oregon. Uh, Emma Camp over at Reason writes about Oregon removing a requirement for high school students to show essential skills before graduating. Now, you might be like, what is she talking about essential skills? Um, It would require students to meet benchmarks in reading, writing, and math. Reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three, basically the three basic things that schools are supposed to do. And now they're basically saying, oh, they don't need to hit those benchmarks. 
It doesn't it doesn't matter. They shouldn't. You know, that's not what it's we feel like they're ready to graduate. So that's what's important is we feel like they're ready to graduate. Uh, And last week, the Oregon Department of Ed unanimously voted to remove the requirement to show a basic mastery in reading, writing and mathematics in order to graduate. This has been on the this has been uh, on the books for a while, but they paused it in 2020, I think, because of the covid issue. But now they just made it permanent. So, no, they don't have to show that they can read, write, or do math. It's all okay. Sarah, what the heck is going on? This is a really interesting article. And I had known that Oregon had paused these requirements in 2020. And what they found, um, the most, you know, kind of slam dunk study that these people are citing is um, that you know, the higher education coordinating committee found that, you know, the program didn't lead to improved outcomes for Oregon students in their first year of college. Um, And that's, that's concerning because this benchmark was set pretty low. Um, One of the first and main option was for meeting a certain benchmark on their standardized test. It was about, you know, the 25th percentile. So three quarter of kids, three quarters of children, uh, teenagers would past that benchmark in reading and, you know, about 45% in math. But even that was set at the level of, you know, partial mastery, you know, you would need support to go to college. So this really isn't a stringent graduation requirement. If you didn't meet it on the standardized uh, assessment, uh, you would be able to substitute with SAT or ACT. Uh, You would be able to put together a classroom uh, based portfolio to show you're ready to graduate. It didn't really seem to me on reading this that there was a very stringent bar to meet. Um, And that's that's one of my concerns. And as in business, you will get more of what you measure. And the problem is that Oregon doesn't seem to be measuring much of anything. And failing to measure something doesn't mean that these kids don't need remediation. They don't need extra help. Um, all it does is deny them the opportunity to get that while they're still in high school. They found that uh, most of these students who came out had to have remedial learning. Uh, yeah. This is before, I mean, this is before they put it on hold. They found out a lot of these. And then when they started it and and then they, they put it on hold and they're like, oh, well, look, the, the kids are still having to have remedial uh, remedial learning, so it really doesn't matter in the long run. So they still had to do it. But again, what are they not counting in this? That's the question. What is the survey not showing? Well, their argument is, of course, is that kids who do poorly in school because they're not they're not getting the education that they need and they feel frustrated, uh, how many of those kids were actually going to end up applying to college? See, that's the thing. You're not getting the people who aren't applying because you haven't given them the tools to be confident in what they're doing. That's what that's what's not being countered in these uh, in these surveys. Absolutely. And you said it better than I could, but these are the students who are not likely to be going to college anyway. Um, And and when you say, well, it's not affecting college students, well, you're not considering the population of students who just decide not to go, that they decided, you know, I'm not equipped for this. Um, So it really does lower the bar for everyone, and it doesn't help the the people it's supposed to be helping by waiving this requirement. I mean, it seems to me the definition of insanity for a school system to basically say, we're not going to test our students on the one thing that we've been tasked with teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now, they're teaching all different other kinds of things that doesn't necessarily focus in on those core factors, but the three core factors that make people basically successful in life of being able to read, being able to write legibly and understandably, and being able to do some basic math, the fact that they're just jettisoning that 
I mean, that, I just don't. It seems insane. It seems absolutely mad that that's what's going on. But that's the and and they are not the only ones who are toying with this idea. Absolutely. And it would be a really dangerous precedent to follow here for other states. Um, what I found just alarming about this article is you read through it and it says, you know, these um, waiving the requirement they were trying to help because, um, gosh, let me find the quote because this was astounding. Um, extra remediation denied those students, quote, the opportunity to take an elective. I think it is more important that students graduate knowing how to read, write, and do basic arithmetic than it is for them to necessarily get an elective. Right. You know, they're electives for a reason. Uh, they're not part of the core curriculum. Uh, so I, I don't mean to be, you know, wacky over the head with something obvious, but it is really just setting aside the basic purpose of these schools and saying, well, it's more important that, you know, all of these students don't have to spend a class period doing remediation when they could be taken an elective. That's yeah. just backward. No, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, the whole, the whole, uh, basically the whole paragraph says, however, critics of the, uh, of the requirements for being able to read, write and do math have framed the extra remediation, the extra education uh, for many low performing Oregon students received as damaging. It's damaging that they get extra education, that they get extra remedial learning. The Department of Ed officials oppose the policy in part because higher rates of students of color, students learning English, English as a second language, and students with disabilities ended up having to take intensive senior year writing and math classes, and that means they were denied the opportunity to take an elect. When did an elective class become more important than the ability to rewrite and do math? That's where we're at right now. All right, last minute here, Sarah. I'll give you the final word on everything today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I think what ties it all together is the fact that market incentives, when introduced to education, can help things. Uh, you know, once we introduce competition via charter schools or open enrollment, uh, that seems to improve things for students, both in those schools and outside of them. Um, and if we're going to have any basic requirements, if we're doing standardized testing, we should make sure our students are prepared for basic skills and they are able to go out into the world with those things. Yeah, so, absolutely. That's no, I mean, I, I think that's it. I mean, you had, you know, you had one job, Ed, you had one job and that job was to teach reading, writing and arithmetic and the ability to learn. And instead mm -hmm. we're stuck on all different kinds of things far afield. And in some cases we're even jettisoning, jettisoning the metrics and the yardstick that we use to test what your core functionality is supposed to be. It's astonishing. Sarah Montalbano, our guest, Alaska Policy Forum. Hour two of the Michael Duke show is dead ahead. When I read this article to begin with, I was like, okay, so first of all, I got to talk to Sarah about this because, <laughs> wow, right? I mean, you know, you read this and that you're right. That is the money quote of that whole article where they basically said, well, you know, this extra tutoring and this extra remedial education on reading and writing and arithmetic, that's just damaging to these kids because then they can't take an elective like home ec or something. I don't know what the electives are, but I mean, wait. You, you, you had one job, and that job was to make sure that they could read, write, and do math. And now you're saying, well, we're not going to test on that. And if we give them extra education on that, they couldn't do the fun stuff. And I'm like, who, 
who is letting their kids eat dessert first? I mean, the broccoli is important. You know what I mean? I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah, not to say electives aren't important, not to say there's not problems with standardized testing, but you're putting kids through this already. And you're saying, you know, it's more important that they get these electives. Time is about trade-offs. You only have so many hours on a school day uh, and you need to accomplish what you're there to accomplish. Jeannie makes an interesting comment, and I don't know how true this is. If you eliminated act electives, school would be three hours long and the students could go home and live their electives, home act, shop class, music lessons, etc. She may, I mean, you know, at some point she may be right. I mean, is does the school day require an entire seven-hour day or six-hour day? Could it be done? We've seen what's happened with, uh, you know, like in homeschooling, most of the kids' classes and stuff can be done in a couple, three hours a day, you know. So is that is there the point where the electives have become the reason instead of the alternative, you know, I guess is what I'm saying. What happened to the reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, basics that need to be taught? Absolutely. I love that comment. I don't know if three hours is the truth, but I really recommend you and all of your readers read Rick Hess's uh, The Great School Rethink because there is a whole chapter where he breaks down the amount of wasted time in a school day. It's amazing because if you add, you know, one more day, you're getting less than half of a day of learning when you, you're trying to add it all up. You're saying, well, we need a longer school day or a longer school year. Yeah, but a lot of that's gonna be just taken up by distractions, not even talking about these, you know, kind of non-essential classes like electives and things like that. So I think it's a really interesting uh, premise there that the school day just doesn't have to be this long. All right, I have to comment on this because Harold put this up. He's our resident troll in chief here. Zero basis to the innuendo about public schools or failures. They're not. Sure, some schools are better than others, but they do okay. My argument would be if you had a business and you had a 25% failure rate on your business, and in fact, 60% of the 75% that passed were actually defective, meaning that they had to have extra work done to them if you were developing a product, I wouldn't say that you would call that a success. I would say that that would be pretty much up there in the failure rate. If only 20, if only 75% of your products were actually viable uh, and not really even viable then because you needed another 50 or 60% needed extra work to make them viable, that to me sounds like failure. I mean, you know, I'm just saying that that sounds, if you were grading it as a as a company producing a product, that would sound like failure. Sarah? I think I will take a totally different tack on this, that you're you're quite possibly right, Harold, that public schools do fine for a lot of students. Um, parents generally are very happy with their schools. They rate them A's or B's a lot of the time. But that doesn't change the fact that parents who are not satisfied with their schools need to have a choice to opt out. And the best way to foster competition and to say, you know, schools, maybe they're doing fine, but they can be better and we need to be striving for better. Um, we Yeah, definitely. And that's why, again, the choice of a charter school, uh, backpack funding, homeschooling. I mean, there should be other options and those options should be embraced instead of this uniformity of everybody's got to get in line and do the basic public school thing like we say you need to. Instead, if parents want to opt out, they should have the choice to do that. Absolutely. All right. <clears throat> you caught me with a drink in my mouth. All right. Uh, Sarah Montalbano, our guest, um, uh, you know, uh, we didn't even get a chance to talk about my favorite subject, uh, which was the idea of, 
because you mentioned it in the Oregon thing, many of these kids weren't going to go to college anyway. And that, of course, is deemed a failure in many people's eyes. But with the workforce, the way we have it today, the fact that we need so many skilled workers in the blue-collar trades, which are looked down upon by many in education, is just astonishing. There are so many opportunities, so many voc-eds, rocket programs, things, apprenticeships, things that could be done. And we need to start treating those a little differently in the public schools as well. Your thoughts on that here for the last minute? I absolutely agree. Vocational schools and classes are really, really important. I would like us to be able to introduce students to these things earlier so that they get a better chance to figure things out before their junior and senior year of high school where they actually need to go get a credential. But the fact is there that we have these jobs, they pay very well, um, and you don't come out saddled with student debt. Uh, as you would from college. So not everyone needs to go to college. Um, I, I support college if that's that's your choice and you have a career in mind that you want uh, to do that for, but you really need to be thinking about where is my future going and what do I want to do with this degree? Right. Or if not, then you need to think about, you know, what are my other options for making a living? Right. Well, and that's going to need to change the narrative because the narrative is every student needs to go to college. That's the narrative mm-hmm. right now. College is a great thing for specific uh, career paths, you know, doctors, engineers, you know, scientists, those kind of things. The, the, it's very much uh, important. But if you are going to go make a living as a contractor or as a plumber or as a truck driver or a welder or something in the trades, that's not a good career. It's a, it's a waste of time and money for you in those cases. We need to just change the narrative and, and we need to do that. Sarah, Sarah, we could talk about this all day. Uh, we really could. You and I. I love uh, talking with you. We're going to have you back on again soon. Thanks for coming on board. Look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks. Uh, we are coming up here. Hour two, Dead Ahead, The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Please uh, like and share, like and follow. Here we go. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Yep, live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukeShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. 
Good morning and welcome back. Hour two of the big radio broadcast and we are continuing on. We just finished up <clears throat> with Sarah Montalbano, who is one of my uh, my favorite people to talk to about education and, uh, uh, you know, schooling ideas and things like that. It is a definitely a... Uh, uh, it's always a joy to talk with her and some great discussions here in the last hour about charter schools, open enrollment, school choice, and the what not to do um, that uh, it, 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 it what not to do. And, and I guess Oregon is the prime example at this point of what not to do. So I'm going to continue this discussion this morning um, along those lines on education since we're here, and it's uh, it's something that I feel very strongly about. And we'll let you sound off. If you disagree, if you think that uh, the things that Sarah and I were talking about in the last hour are not right uh, or that we're wrong in some way, uh, feel free to call in and, and give us a counterpoint to it. The phone number is 907-433-3150. 907-433-3150. Powered by our friends over there at Satellite West. Or you can find out them at SatelliteWest.com where all their local dealers are and everything else. Uh, phone lines are open right now. If you want to be part of it, here, <clears throat> here's where we need to go. Let's... Um, let, let's talk for just a second about this thing in Oregon. And we're going to go a little deeper than what we talked about here with Sarah. Um, we talked about in generalities. I will post this uh, article, by the way, up into the chat room for folks to uh, read along with if they want to uh, hear more about it. Um, here's what it says. Oregon is removing a requirement for high school students to show essential skills before graduating. Those essential skills, by the way, are requirements that students meet benchmarks in reading, writing, and math. Um, last week, the Oregon Department of Ed unanimously voted to remove a requirement for Oregon high schoolers to demonstrate a basic mastery, basic, not advanced, not just a basic mastery in reading, writing, and mathematics in order to graduate. The requirement, uh, which was most often met using students' standardized test results, has been on pause since 2020, which I'm assuming has to do um, – uh, has to do with the fact that there was home that it was uh, uh, the COVID pandemic and schools were you know closing and they didn't want to mess with the graduate. I'm sure that that was all part and parcel of it. Although I would question even then why they would pause that law if they're doing distance education or some kind of uh, you know electronic learning or something for students during the COVID pandemic. It would seem to you know lowering the standards wouldn't seem to be the best choice if you're trying to teach these kids. <laughs> And get them to graduate to be useful adults. That just seems like, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of insane, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. According to state documents, the assessment of essential skills benchmark is typically met when a student meets a cutoff score in a statewide standardized test. Now, they couldn't use alternatives like SATs or ACTs. Um, the cutoff scores... <clears throat> Uh, have been available, as I mentioned, because it's been on pause since 2020. But a state guide from 2016-2017 school years lists the cutoff for one popular test, the Smarter Balance Test, which students take in their 11th grade year, as a score of uh, 2515 for reading and 2543 for math. That basically means they only have to hit the 25th percentile. They only have to, I mean, this is like the, this is a basic comprehension 
of math on that. The assessments would put the scores roughly in the 25th uh, for reading and 45th percentiles, respectively, for math and reading, you know, assuming no. So, th- again, this is basic essentials. This is not you have to be reading at a college level. This is not advanced placement. This is just basic assessment of skills. And it's just, it's crazy. While the math cutoff in particular at 45, uh, 45th percentile may seem high, both ranges would barely put test takers a few points into the level two range of Smarter Balance's four-level scoring range, mean basically barely half. Level two scores are defined by the testing organization as meaning that a student has a, quote, partial understanding of an ability to apply the knowledge and skills associated with college content readiness, adding that a student at this level would need support to be ready for college, meaning that even if they passed this assessment for essential skills in Oregon, which they've now stopped, but even if they were forced to do it, that means that the student at this level would need Support, meaning remedial education. They would need extra schooling to be ready for college. While not every high school graduate can or should go to college, if a high school student can't even demonstrate partial understanding of the subject matter of their classes, letting them continue on to their senior year and graduate high school without additional intervention is clearly irresponsible. Yeah. However, critics, and this is the part that Sarah and I were, this is the money quote right here. However, critics have framed the extra remediation or extra tutoring or learning that many low-performing Oregon students received as damaging. So students getting extra education, students getting extra tutoring in subjects that they're not proficient in is damaging to them. Department of Ed officials opposed the policy in part because, quote, higher rates of students of color, students learning English as a second language, and students with disabilities ended up having to take intensive senior year writing and math classes, extra remediation that, quote, denied those students the opportunity to take an elective, according to a quote from the Oregonian. So they are more concerned that these students of color, Students learning English as a second language and students of disability, instead of being proficient in reading and writing and arithmetic, they are instead more concerned that those students didn't get to take an elective over becoming proficient in the three R's. Emma Camp goes on to say, valuing electives over basic skills seems like a strange set of priorities. Ensuring that students graduate with basic academic competence should surely take precedence over their ability to take an elective course. But that's not that. I mean, yes, surely. They go on to talk about valuing valuing electives over basic skills seems like a strange set of priorities. Ensuring that students graduate with basic academic uh, competencies should definitely take precedent. The strongest evidence supporting ditching the competency requirement is a 2021 report from the state's Higher Ed Committee, which found that the additional requirement didn't leave to improved outcomes for Oregon students in their first year of community or four-year college. However, that isn't necessarily the slam dunk that supporters of removing the standard think it is. 
The existing benchmarks only ask students to prove basic mastery of reading, writing, and math. Students who fail to meet those standards and are thus flagged for extra help are definitionally struggling with simple high school concepts. And if you're struggling to grasp high school level instruction, you're probably not going to be enrolling in college after your high school career. I mean, that they even acknowledge that in the report. They say potential reasons for the lack of finding include the level of skill demonstrated being too low to improve post-secondary outcomes. Yeah, because those kids, again, if they're struggling in high school, are definitely not going to be throwing their hat all in into the ring for college. But this is where they're going. They are they are. They just said, we're not going to put this reading, writing, and math thing in here. It just doesn't make any sense. Emma finishes up by saying, removing Oregon's assessment of essential skills requirements could make it even harder to identify which students need extra help before graduating. By removing an objective measure of student achievement, especially when compared to ever-inflating student GPA, high school graduation in Oregon risks becoming functionally meaningless as a measure of educational uh, attainment. But, I mean, it is Oregon, first of all. Man, those people. But on top of that, the fact that reading and writing and math, the three pillars of what we would consider any school system to be charged with as as a job, the fact that they're pitching all those out is... Just nuttier than squirrel poo at this point. Absolutely insane that that's the direction we're taking. We need we need to we need to be engaging, folks. We need to be engaging, and whether it's a charter school uh, or a private school or a pandemic, you know, pod, a learning pod, or a teacher share program, or a homeschooling, or whatever else. Parents are taking the bull by the horns and doing their own thing for a reason. They're not doing it because the education system is doing fantastic, right? And yes, even as Sarah said, some, I'm sure some people are, you know, some people are, the the schools are doing well for their children. But for the lion's share, it seems like they're not doing so hot. They're not doing so hot. Obviously, any school system in my mind that immediately takes out any kind of uh, tracking of students' achievements in reading, writing, and math seems to me like you're taking out the quality control of any kind of product that you're producing. Right? I mean, again, going back to what Harold was saying and what my, my analogy of if you're producing a product, if you're producing a widget that's supposed to do X, and you take out any testing that shows the you know the readiness of that product to do X, that just seems counterintuitive. Does it not? Or is that just me? I mean, am I am I this thing on? Am I talking to myself? Is is it just me that's looking at this and going, you had one job. One job to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, to teach the ability to learn, to give them basic foundational skills, and now you don't want to, and now you don't want to 
uh, chest on those specific skills? Is it because you've received poor poor marks in the in the past? Is it because in the 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019 timeframe, you were still falling short of the goal and now you'd just rather not you put your finger, la, 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 just put your fingers in your ear and you don't want to hear how you're doing on it? Is that what it comes down to? I mean, why exactly? Donna says, why have schools in Oregon? I mean, why have schools then? If you're not going to test the reading, writing, and and math levels, if you're not going to test for the one thing you're supposed to be providing, then why have schools at all? Is it just because the parents are looking for a a seven-hour-a-day babysitter? As long as that function is covered, we're good? I mean, if you're not going to test and it doesn't matter if the rules, I mean, it's like, are we playing whose line is it in anyways, where the rules are made up and the points don't count? As long as they could sit through a six or seven hour a day class, five days a week for 12 years and they get a stamp of approval, doesn't matter what else they learned. That's, that's insane. All right. I got to go. But, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I, I want to know what what do you what what do you think? 907-433-3150. 907-433-3150, the Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free thinking radio. We return with more right after this. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, let me go back here. See what you guys have been talking about. Um... Donna says, thank you, Sarah. Competition works. I agree with that. Um, Anthony says, in regards to college, I still fail to digest the ideology that an 18-year-old going a quarter million dollars into debt for a piece of paper is a success. Again, I, I, I would agree. College is a great thing for a specific set of students who are going after a specific goal, specific type of career path. That makes sense for them. But if not, then we can't just deem it a success because you got a four-year degree in underwater basket weaving or whatever because you could stick it out. I mean, that's a test of your stick to itness more than anything else. Congratulations, Harold. His daughter's on her final training to be a registered nurse. Good job. Good job. Um, congratulations on that. Um When principals, uh, when principals at work at the IKSD, uh, which I don't know which school district that is, send their kids to Mount Inchcombe. You have all the proof you need that the state is wasting your money out here, says Willie, who's out in the bush. Um, 
They don't actually care, says Anthony, if kids are educated to a standard so long as they still qualify for and pursue student loans to make Uncle Sam some of that sweet, sweet forever debt. <laughs> so this is true. Um, <clears throat> Barbara asked, why are they waiting until high school? Um, I mean, that's a question. I know that, you know, in places like in Germany and stuff, they're deciding on kids' career paths in junior high school. They're, you know, based on their aptitude and their interests and things like that. I'm not saying that you should lock people in at that young age to where they're going to go for the rest of their lives, but we should at least be talking about it before we get there. Um, Danny over on YouTube asks, is college level readiness necessary for living a quality of life that fulfills most people? This hinges on a standard that may or may not adequately measure the purpose of compulsory education. I mean, I see your point here, but again, they're not even a basic handle on reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's essentially what they've just divested themselves of. A basic understanding. And call and again, even those that were hitting that standard still needed remediation to be able to get into college. That's the crazy part. Um let's see here. Forget uh what's Melissa say? Forget about going to college. If they can't read, they can't even take the written driving test. They can't vote even if they wanted to. The next generation is being hobbled. I mean, I think it's up to us to make sure that our children are, you know, in those categories and can read and do all those kind of things. Um, but, yeah, again, why have schools in Oregon at all? Because schools employs people. It's about government jobs. I mean, that's... <laughs> You're not wrong. You know, some the part of the public is looking for a seven-hour-a-day babysitter, and there's people who need jobs out there. That's what it all. That's what it all comes down to. Lower Cuscoquim School District. Thank you, Bill. Um. All right, we're down to the last minute. Um. Uh. Sarah was drinking coffee. She she highlights that she's drinking coffee, sweetened condensed milk instead of creamer. Oh my God! I just, I think I just went into a diabetic coma. But it sounds delicious. All right. <clears throat> Barbara says, but for basic skills, literacy, math, writing, that should be at the end of grade school. That competency should be established at the end of grade school. Junior high, high school has a different function. I mean, I <clears throat> am not disagreeing with you, but uh, again, the fact that they took that completely out of the high school at the end is still just flabbergasting flabbergasting flibbity-jibbity all right let's uh let's let's go on let's uh let's move ahead here uh phone lines are open we'll take anything you want to talk about uh the michael duke show common sense radio here we go Okay, welcome back. 
Hour two of the Michael Duke Show. Phone lines are open if you would like to uh, sound off. We'd love to hear from you right now. Uh, any topic is fair game now. I've, I've, I, I think I've, well, I haven't beat the educational horse yet to death, but uh, I mean, it's getting there. It's look, looking a little threadbare. But I mean, I've, I've had my say on what's going on with that. Uh, I just, I, I find it astonishing that these, that, that this is the arguments that we're having with school districts across the country as to whether or not we should be testing our kids for basic comprehension and reading, writing, and arithmetic. I just, it just blows my mind that that's where we're, that that's where we're at. Well, some bad news for the uh, fishing industry. The second snow crab season has been canceled as researchers continue to, um, pinpoint the cause and blame it on climate change and global warming. They say that in 2018, um, that there was an estimated 11 billion crabs living, crawling, eating, and reproducing in the frigid waters of uh, of the Bering Sea. But that here we are by 2021, more than 90% of them have vanished. This year's survey showed only about a billion crabs remaining, and that left a lot of questions like, were they overfished? Did they die of disease? What's going on? So NOAA scientists set out to find the answer, and they published a report last week indicating that marine heat waves collapsed the snow crab population. Those findings fit into a long line of data points showing the devastating effects of climate change, uh, greenhouse gases warming the earth, etc., and the ocean water absorbing that heat, causing marine temperatures to rise. According to the report, remaining crab populations will take years to rebound, and that spells pain for fishing fleets who suffered a first-ever cancellation of the snow crab season in 2022 and 23. Alaskan officials earlier this month canceled yet another snow crab season, and it looks like it's going to be an ongoing situation now for the future. Um, No word yet as to when they may think this is going to turn around. Scientists canceled the 2020 snow crab survey because of the pandemic. Some hope the population would rebound, but the situation had worsened in that time frame. Um... Officials in Alaska won't decide until late next year whether to open the 24-25 snow crab season. And even if they do, the harvest will likely be modest. Those closures and recovery periods are a sign of things to come. Um, At one point, the snow crab might suffer another year. Bristol Bay red crab might be on the deck. Uh, Officials close those fisheries in 2021 and 2022. At other points, an entirely different species might fall prey to the changes of the climate. So we don't know where things are going, but it's not good news for um, <clears throat> fisheries out there in uh, in what's going on. Ele- from 11 billion crabs to 1 billion crabs in three short years. That's kind of a astounding. It's, it, it, it's almost an unbelievable number change at that point. Almost an unbelievable number change for sure. Uh, the uh, state of Alaska and the 
Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority, ADIA, um, has gotten into a bit of a tiff with Doyon. Now, I think we talked about this last week. I know I read the story. I don't remember if we actually reported on it with you. But Doyon was, is not happy with ADIA for a variety of reasons. One has to do with Mustang. Now, I know we talked about Mustang and ADIA is attempting to um, is attempting to liquidate some of the assets and everything else. Mustang was taken over by ADIA uh, through a default situation. And um, it is uh, it, it's definitely uh, an interesting situation. Uh, Doyon is still owed money by the Mustang find and the Mustang group. There's something like two million dollars. And because ADIA was trying to liquidate it, Doyon got a little bit upset about it. And in doing so, they sent out a letter um, to uh, they sent out a letter to uh, basically to everyone, and basically said that they were canceling land access to the Ambler Road project, which runs it's a 212 mile road, something like that, and about 10 or 11 of those miles run through Doyon land. In the prime version, the, 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 you know, they got two or three different variations of where this land could go. In the best one, Doyon has about 10 or 12, 10, 11 miles of surface that the road would transit. So they cited poor treatment as a factor in a sharply worded letter outlining its decision to cancel the agreement with ADIA. Uh, the three-year agreement ends in April, and it has allowed for contractors to conduct studies needed to support the development of this uh, road and other things on Doyon land. Um, Doyon said in their one-page letter that they do not intend to extend the agreement or enter into a new land access agreement with the state agency. They also expressed disappointment with the state agency's action on the North Slope oil field project that Doyon was involved in. And this is the Mustang field. Um, the, the, uh, the statement, uh, for, it was a strongly worded letter from Do- Doyon CEO Aaron Shute. Um, they later go on in a statement from Josie Wilson, the spokesperson for, the, uh, for ADIA, Significant progress has been made with the communities and tribes regarding the project and benefits and jobs and economic development. It's an unfortunate and frankly unfair that Doyon is tying issues not involved with the Ambler Road to its support for the Ambler Road. Well, I mean, if you've got leverage, I guess you use the leverage you can when it comes down to it. Um, the uh, in a letter in the letter, Shoot said that Doyon entered into the road access agreement in 2021 with a hope that Doyon shareholders and communities in its region would benefit from the road project and any potential mineral development. But two and a half years after the deal was signed, there's no agreement in place to meet those objectives. And uh, he continued on and said, Doyon's relationship with ADIA and the Ambler Access Project has been fraught for many years. Our public record uh, record comments and letters to ADIA leadership reflect many of our concerns related to the project and the poor treatment that we received from ADIA. Again, part of this goes back to the whole Mustang thing. Doyon is currently suing Adia over a debt, uh, over that debt for unpaid work at the uh, at the oil project there, uh, and I'm sure this all is part and parcel of it. Uh, in you know, as it continues, the interesting part is that um, 
Adia is just moving forward. They're planning on spending $7 million to continue on with the road to Ambler. On Thursday, the board voted unanimously to approve $6.95 million. That figure will be matched by Ambler Metals, uh, LLC, a firm that holds uh, the broad mineral belt that the road is intended to reach. By the end of 2024, Adia and Ambler Metals will have spent $54 million on the road. Um, And that means this is where it's going. Now, the vote followed a decision earlier this month by Doyon to suspend working with Adia. Doyon-owned land lies on the path of the top two preferred routes. The third option, intended and identified in a federal analysis earlier this fall, does cross land where Doyon owns the subsurface rights but not the rights to the surface. So apparently they're going to go with the third option that cuts across where they don't own the actual surface rights. Uh, Doyon refused comment, uh, declined comment, and referred to the uh, company's prior statement. Uh, again, Doyon owns lands covering 10 to 12 miles of the proposed 211-mile route, and Doyon land had been envisioned as a site of gravel pits needed for the roads. Doyon again sued in mid-September over a separate issue with a Mustang pad. But they're just going to continue on ahead. ADI is just no, no pain, no suffering here. We're just going to keep going. I, I have questions. I have many, many questions at this point as well to find out. Uh, all right, 907-433-3150, 907-433-3150. If you would like to sound off and talk about anything today, uh, this is the this is the way we're going to do it. we got uh, just uh, one final segment coming up, and we're going to uh, just open line, open format for any topic that you might want to chat about, including um, – discussions on i don't know anything movies tv i we watched some watch some goods i watched a very funny movie this weekend um it's been a while since i watched it and it is um i haven't i i've watched it before so i i you know but it's still laugh out loud funny both terry and i uh terry was a little bit under the weather um but she was laughing just as hard as i was (laughs) And that uh, uh, maybe I'll tell you about that movie here on the other side. It's a it's a funny it's a, you know, kind of a good Halloween time movie, uh, funny, laugh out loud, good stuff. And uh, and I think I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, So uh, feel free to uh, feel free to stick around. We're going to come back to this here in just a moment. We're going to go to the break here. And when we come back, we'll have a full segment of just you and me talking about whatever it is that we want to talk about. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Don't forget, you can always join us in the chat room on Facebook or on YouTube. Easiest one is facebook.com slash Show slash live. You can also send me an email, me at michaeldukeshow.com, me at michaeldukeshow.com. Would love to hear back from you here in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this.
Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Oh, okay. What else? Uh, There we go. Um, nuclear plant, cancer, imaging counter, um, okay. Other than funding, what's the purpose of maybe Sarah, if Sarah's still in the room, she can answer this. Cindy says, other than funding, what's the purpose of the maps testing in December? Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. Again, maybe Sarah can answer that question if Sarah's still in the chat room this morning. Um, Can you say, uh, Jeannie says, I wonder if the Chinese trawlers will also be restricted from harvesting snow crab. And then Bill says, can you say draggers? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, sure, maybe the warming of the ocean is a big part of it. But I would also say that dragging the entire bottom of the ocean, scraping it like a freaking whisk, Probably doesn't help their habitat either. <clears throat> Sorry. Anthony said, so how long are we figuring it's going to be until someone in the government blames COVID for killing the crabs off and pushing a new anti-crab variant because of a you know vaccine booster? Oh, man. Um... It's trawlers. Dick says that uh, when somebody asks about the Russians or if the Russians are dropping pots out there, Russian hatchery fish uh, fish out pressure on the salmon feed and the environment, but not crab too much. It's the trawlers destroying the bottom and the bycatch that is a significant part of the problem. Yeah, we should probably get, uh, because this is not an area where I have expertise or forte, um, although... I still remember the first time I saw a dragger uh, when I was commercial fishing. Uh, I mean, I'd seen the little, you know, flying nets and things like that for smaller boats that they'd done some, you know, that they'd done some fishing like that. I didn't think too much of it. That's, you know, little tiny. But this, you know, 125-foot dragger with the the net that's 65 feet across and the big weights and everything. And I was just like, wow. I mean... Wow. And all I could think of was, especially when I could see some of the things that they were pulling up and I was like, that's got to be just devastating. I mean, I'm, I'm 18 years old thinking that's got to be devastating to the bottom and to the, into the habitat and where they live. I mean, I'm still thinking those things when I'm that young, I'm like, how can you, how can you justify that kind of destructive, just didn't. I don't know. It never struck me as a. It never struck me as a uh, uh, great way to go. For it. I mean, I'm a conservationist, right? I mean, I don't want to preserve it. I want to conserve it. I want it to be used, but I want it to be used in such a way that it can be sustainable. That's how I was taught when I was taught to hunt and fish and things like that. That we respected what we took, and we always, you know, we always did the best we can, and uh, and I just. I saw that and I thought, how is that even sustainable in the long run? 
scraping the bottom completely flat. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, <clears throat> anyway, it just it seems counterintuitive to me. Let's just put it that way. If you want a sustainable, if you want a sustainable uh, harvest or habitat or yield. All right. Well, what else do you guys want to talk about? You guys are all super quiet this morning. All 50-something of you here. Um, you guys are being quiet. suppose I should go over here and uh, make sure that I have the rest of the story. Come here. All right. I saved some stories up for you guys. I saved some stories up. Go over here and pull up the information. Oof. The interwebs is slow today. Uh, okay, we already covered that. We covered that. Uh, we covered that. Ooh, that's a whole story in and of itself. Maybe we should cover that one right there. Okay. So if we don't get any phone calls or anything else, I've got a good piece up uh, talking about uh, what, what we want to talk about here. Um, don't go, I don't go skating on the ice. That's the late. <laughs> that was one of the news stories this morning um, in uh, uh, on uh, KTUU. Don't go, don't go out on the ice right now. It's not a good idea. Apparently, some people have fallen through already on these different ice ponds around the Anchorage area. Um, Melissa says, today is the day I become the Lone Ranger on the uh, on the school board. Pray for me. That's what she says. <sighs> okay, we're 10 seconds out. Let's get to it. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like, share, follow. Let's do this. Well, okay, welcome back to the program. Final segment for this Monday edition of the Michael Duke Show. Been a fast show today. That first hour with Sarah is always good. I always enjoy that. If you missed it, Sarah Montalbano was our guest from the Alaska Policy Forum. And you can go back and uh, re-watch that on the replay on Facebook or YouTube. Or you can uh, subscribe to the podcast. Podcast goes up every day right after the show. And uh, all you have to do is uh, subscribe uh, on, uh, well, what is it, CastBox, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Spotify is the easiest for me. I I listen to all my podcasts on Spotify. Uh, and all you got to do is give us subscribe, and uh, it can be loaded right into your device every time, ready to go. You can listen to the show. You don't even have to get up early. I know that's a big deal for many of you. 
just getting up. I talked to somebody the other day. I used to listen to your show all the time when it was, you know, in because my show originally was from 4 to 6 in the evening, every evening. Always on the drive home, you know. And he's like, but I can't get up at 6 o'clock. I can't, just can't get up that early. Well, you know, that's why, that's why God made podcasts. That's why. You want to just get a podcast or watch it on the replay or watch it on your TV or whatever. Um, it's, uh, it's surreal, by the way. To, I, I, was, I, I, was, I was on my TV the other day watching YouTube, and I saw my own face on the thing, and I was like, what? Oh, yeah, I guess it is. It's up on you. So I watched a few minutes of it. It's kind of surreal to see your own face up on the big TV up there on the wall. <laughs> kind of crazy, isn't it? Um, all right. Well, uh, let's see. What were we talking about? Oh, um, I was, I was going to share. Uh, well, first of all, the phone lines are open. So if you want to sound off on anything, now's the time to do it. I've got open phone lines today. Any topic is fair game. If you want to comment on what we've been talking about here, um, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to discuss uh, any topic that you want to uh, hit on education or otherwise. Uh, but before we went to break, I was talking about yesterday, my wife and I, um, uh, my wife and I sat down and we were watching a movie and it's been a while since I watched this movie and I just, it was kind of a whim. I'm like, Hey, we should watch that. That was, that's, that's kind of fun. And it was, it was fun. It was so laugh out loud, funny, um, that, uh, I mean, it was just, <clears throat> I had to chuckle and uh, it's a movie kind of for the, well, it could be watched anytime, but really it hits home. Terry is one of those ones that plans out her movie watching for Halloween because she loves like the Halloween movies, like Michael Myers Halloween and the Friday the 13th and all the classic horror slasher flicks. She like gets her whole October all stacked up and she's got a couple of my my kids um, in with her on that. And they sit there and they they had a marathon the other day. Uh, while I was while I was gone, they had a marathon of I don't know how many of the Halloweens they watched. I, I mean, there's like a dozen of them or something. But they just they just love to to do that for the Halloween season. So this one was uh, uh, this movie was called uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which if you haven't seen it, it is <laughs> it's pretty freaking hysterical. It's Alan Tyduck. Uh, and, uh, I can't remember the name of the other guy, but Alan Tyduck from Firefly and Resident Alien. Uh, and, uh, they play two guys in the West Virginia, the Appalachian mountains who've got a vacation cabin they just bought and they want to renovate. And there's a bunch of college kids and it's a series of misunderstandings where the college kids think that the two hillbillies are out there to kill them. And the hillbillies were just trying to fix up their cabin and, you know, they tried to save somebody who, you know, hurt themselves and it becomes this whole thing. It is absolutely hysterical. It's like a parody of a slasher film um, uh, because, you know, th this just it's a set of misunderstood circumstances more than anything else. And uh, again, I haven't laughed out loud quite that hard in a long time, but it's a fun, fun thing to do. So if you get a chance to watch it, my movie recommendation for today and tomorrow, because I guess tomorrow's, you can watch it anytime. But Tucker and Dale versus Evil. It's a great, uh, it's a great uh, show. Um, I mean, it's a, it's still a slasher flick, so there is some blood. Don't, you know, don't let the kids watch it, so to speak. But it's, it's, it's very funny. It's very, very funny. 
uh, you should go out there and and uh, put it on your watch list right now. I watched it on Prime, I think, is where we watched it last night. Um, Gary in the chat room makes a comment here about Alaska DOT now claiming they need $400 million to replace the bridges for the heavy trucks. Is this due to the ore truck runs? If so, Fort Knox should pay. Um, I did get a couple comments when I was up in Fairbanks here last last weekend. Not well, weekend before last now. From people who were very upset about the um, Mancho mine and the ore hauling and everything else, and uh, to which I. I completely uh, understand people being upset about it. Um, I can understand their point of view now without necessarily, you know, necessarily agree with it to uh, address their point of view. But my whole point with this whole thing from the very beginning is this is everything that's been done and they went, um, they went out of their way. The mine went out of their way to make sure that everything that they did was legal and above board. Now, you may not like the results. You may not like what has happened with it, but they did everything in their power to make sure that everything they did was legal and above board. So if you have a problem with this, if you have an issue with this, um, then I think maybe you might want to take you know, take that issue maybe more towards the state or to whatever agency is in charge of that stuff. Uh, if the state's asking and claiming they now need $400 million to replace the bridges for the heavy trucks, and it's not just the Mancho thing. Um, Barbara Haney in the chat room, Assemblywoman, mentions that it's also the IGU trucks, the interior gas utility trucks, because they're now going to be gassing or they're now going to be trucking gas from down on the North Slope as well. Uh, so there are multiple uses for that. But if it's all legal and lawful, I mean, I can understand being opposed to it. Don't get me wrong. But, it, you know, I, I sometimes think that the ire is directed in the wrong direction, you know. And, again, it becomes a case of people being upset. And and who was the caller last week that said he was a – he said NIMBYs and hypocrites. And he goes, and I'm a NIMBY and I'm a hypocrite. I don't want those kind of things. He was talking about subdividing and some other things. But it's the same kind of thing. If you don't want that stuff in your own backyard, you know, but but direct your ire at the people who are, you know, ultimately responsible for taking care of things like roads and everything else. Um. The congressional delegation is who they need to talk to, says Barbara. That was possibly. Um, and and right now, now that there is an organization in the interior, and I can't remember what they're called, community for committee for safer roads or what. Anyway, they filed a lawsuit with the state against this, which is really going to go nowhere. Because again, everything that Mancho has done has been, you know, they they made sure that they crossed every T and dotted every I. I just can't see how this can can stop it now. It's already up. It's already implemented. It's already going on. Uh, Anthony says the time for having a problem with it was about a year ago when they had an open forum about it. Nobody showed up to any of those meetings, and now they want to gripe, he says. That's, that's a great thing. And then Timothy says, how many of those bridges have deferred maintenance? Oh, don't even get me started on that. Right? How much, you know, my comment has always been, 
who we should be talking to is the legislature to make sure that the maintenance that we're doing on these roads continues to be where it needs to be. We need to be talking to the legislators and to the bureaucrats at uh, DOT and things like that to make sure that these roads continue to be maintained at their current level so that they remain at their current level. Um, I drove around back and forth to Fairbanks uh, from Fairbanks to uh, North Pole a couple times this last weekend. And I'll be honest with you, I, I saw one truck the entire time I was there. Now, maybe I just wasn't paying attention to it, but I mean, I saw one truck the whole time. It, you know, I, people are talking like they're going to be nose to tail 24 hours a day for miles and miles and miles. And I just, I just don't know what to think about this. Is this much ado about nothing? Is this just, you know, a knot in my backyard and I'm worried about it? Um, you know, they have trucks like this, maybe not to this length or, you know, the size necessarily, all across the United States on roads and highways. And I just, I don't see how, for some reason, we think, we seem to think like we're, you know, blazing new trails and in, in tearing up the road or something like that. We see this stuff all the time. I just I just don't see, you know, I just don't see it being a big deal. Um, and yeah, they are paying for it through fuel taxes and a special, you know, they're 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 paying their share. Maybe it's not as much as you'd like to see them pay, but it's still paying their share. So I did, but I did get a couple of people that came and stopped and talked to me about this and and had their say and and uh, you know, I understand it. they were. They were people who were opposed to having the trucks going on. And my question was to them, to one of them specifically, I said, okay, so what's your solution? What's your solution to do that? And they said, oh, well, they should build a processing plant at the mine. Yeah, but what they said was it's economically, it's not economically feasible to, to create a crushing and processing plant there. That's why they're trucking it over to Fort Knox. Because that is feasible, the other one isn't. So what what do you do then? Well, I don't know. Okay. Well, that's the if you don't I mean, it, it you know, don't be complaining about it if you don't have a viable solution. If your solution is shut them down, eliminate the 120 driving jobs and all the other jobs that the that the mine would produce and the extra work that the that is up at Fort Knox that's going to be produced out of that and the extra jobs that if you're if you just you just don't want the progress then I guess just say you don't want the progress or have a have a or have a plan that's feasible and viable and legal which is what these people did I just, you know, again, I'm I'm a little flabbergasted by the whole being up in arms about it. But maybe I don't have property that runs right up on the highway there or is dependent on those roads as much as I used to. All right. Well, um, we got more coming up tomorrow. Brad Keithley, Chris Story. It'll all be good. We'll be ready to go. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. We'll see you tomorrow, my friends. Have a great day.
And Kathy hits the nail on the head. She said the roads were not built up to the standard if the trucks are breaking them up. I mean, that's the thing. If you maintain them, if you continually maintain them, they'll stay up to par. I just... I think there's a lot of NIMBY stuff going on here. That's that's just kind of my feeling on it. That we want all this economic growth and development and everything else, just not if we have to see it. Or deal with it or live with it. I mean, if the roads are getting torn up, then there's one person you need to call, and that's the head of the DOT or your legislator. Because they're paying for their road gas just like everybody else. And then some. All right. I got to go. I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a great day. shed our terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show